Come Follow Me with David Riches is brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. Cedar Fort has created LDS books and products for 35 years and is the best place to get clean and wholesome content. Visit us at lds.cedarfort.com and use code PODCAST20 to save 20% off your entire order. Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Bridges. My name's Casey Paul Griffiths. I'm the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, along with Mary Jane Woodger, and I'm going to be your guest host for the podcast this week. This week, we get a special treat, which is we get to talk about section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Not a very long scripture block, but boy, is there a lot to digest in section 93. Now, when we're talking about context, we actually know very little about the context of section 93. Joseph Smith himself only provided a one-line introduction to the revelation in his history, just writing simply, on the 6th of May, 1833, I received the following. Because this revelation is very, very similar in parts to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it might be easier for us to assume that it came in relation to Joseph's translation of the Bible. However, the records kept by Joseph Smith and his scribes show that they completed work on the New Testament about three months earlier in February 1833. In addition, the changes made to the Gospel of John in this revelation don't match the changes Joseph made as part of his new translation of the Bible. So we're not sure if there's a connection there. One possible insight into the context of the revelation comes from Bishop Newell K. Whitney. He's a bishop of the church in Kirtland. On the back of the earliest surviving copy of this revelation, uh, Bishop Whitney writes, Quote, Revelation to Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, Frederick G. Williams, and Newell K. Whitney by chastisement and also relative to the Father and the Son. End quote. Probably the best motivation for this revelation comes from the Savior himself, who states in the revelation in verse 20, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name, and in due time receive of his fullness. Now, contained within this revelation are not only profound insights into how we worship the Father and the Son, but also some of the weightiest statements made about the nature of God, of Jesus Christ, and about ourselves, the sons and daughters of God. So let's dive in. If you'll grab your scriptures and take a look in the first five verses, this brief set of verses, particularly verse one, is one of the most comprehensive yet simple descriptions of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. Previous to this time, the Savior had already made several promises to prominent church leaders that they might see his face. You can find some of those promises in section 50, verse 45, section 67, verses 10 and 14. Uh, he says it again in section 76, verses 116 to 118, and again in section 88, verse 68. But in verse 1, the promise is made that every soul can see the face of the Savior. In fact, the Savior says, It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. That is uh, a wonderful, wonderful promise that's, again, not just given to the prominent leaders of the church, but to every soul. Everybody that follows these five simple and logically progressive steps can enter into the presence of the Savior. These promises can be applied not only after our death and resurrection, but also in this life, in the promise to truly know Christ through the second comforter. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, take a look at DNC 88, verses 3 through 4, and section 68, verse 12. 
Now, the five steps provided in this verse are just simply, one, forsake your sins, two, come unto Jesus Christ, three, call on the name of Jesus Christ, four, obey the voice of Christ, and five, keep the commandments. This simple sequence gives all men and women the straightforward instructions they need to enter the presence of God. The Savior also explains two advantages that every man and woman who seeks this path already possess to help them along the way. First, we have true light or the light of Christ, which gives an intrinsic sense of right and wrong to every person born to this world. And second, we have the example of Jesus Christ, who gained a body of flesh received the fullness of the Father, and demonstrated the works of the Father, these two guides, the light of Christ within us and the example of Christ's life, prepare us for eternal life. Now, jumping down to verse 6, there's some unique things about who is recording these verses that Joseph is receiving. For instance, verse 6 says, John saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory, and the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Now, because what you're reading in section 93 is so Similar to the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, it's easy to assume that what we're talking about and the the record that the Lord's referring to in verse 6 is the Gospel of John. However, if you look closely at the text, um, it's also possible, in fact, very likely, that the record that the Lord's referring to here isn't the Gospel of John, which we already have, but a record that was kept by John the Baptist. Um, this is an opinion that's been held by several prominent scriptural commentators, including Orson Pratt, uh, John Taylor, Sidney B. Sperry, Bruce R. McConkie interpreted the verse this way. In fact, Bruce R. McConkie urged his readers to carefully compare verses 6 through 11 with verses 16 through 17 of Matthew chapter 3 to identify who the writer of this passage is. Um, now, identifying John the Baptist as the author of this passage connects well with the Savior's tribute to John. The Savior, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, said, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And you've always looked at that and said, yeah, John baptized Jesus, and that's incredible. But is John greater than, you know, Moses? Is John greater than Elijah? Why did the Savior seem to put so much attention on John when when the scriptural record just indicates that he's a great forerunner for Jesus Christ. He baptizes Jesus Christ. Um, John the Baptist's words, as recorded in section 93, which it's possible that uh, John, the author of the Gospel of John, recorded and put into as part of his record, indicate that John's greatness came in his role as a witness of Jesus Christ. John was given the singular honor of performing the baptism of the Savior of the world. But John never really shined a light on himself. Instead, he wisely points everybody towards the true source of light, that's Jesus Christ. That's one thing that makes him a great prophet. To to his own band of followers, you'll remember in John chapter 3, John says, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He must increase and I must decrease. And that is the mark of a great prophet, someone that doesn't worry about their own personal visibility that points people towards Christ and helps people understand who Jesus Christ is. The book of Revelation says the spirit, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in that sense, John is the greatest prophet because he points everybody towards Christ. The unselfish way that John showed devotion to Jesus Christ and served as an unfailing witness of Jesus Christ for the day of his martyrdom sets John the Baptist apart as one of the greatest among all the prophets who ever lived. And John's work as a witness continues in our time. You'll recall that John was the angel that appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery early on in this dispensation. 
uh, to authorize baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Uh, that's in section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And like the verses say here, verse 18 um, notes that we will one day receive the fullness of the record of John. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> it, it's, it's hopeful to know that this is suggesting that John not only preached and taught, but also kept a record, one that we unfortunately don't have right now. But if section 93 is just a hint at what John wrote down, it's going to be an amazing, amazing uh, bit of scripture to study. Now, moving on to verses 12 through 18, let's look at a couple things that John reveals. Um, John, for instance, says that Jesus received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of a fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness Thus was he called the Son of God. That's verses 12 through 14. Now, if you're like me, one of the most frustrating aspects of the New Testament and the Savior's mortal ministry is that we just don't know very much about it. The Savior's uh, uh, ministry is basically measured from his baptism to his resurrection in the four New Testament Gospels, but there's almost no information about his life before that time. Matthew and Luke probably give us the most information. Matthew gives us the the nativity story, as does Luke. And Luke also adds a little story about when Jesus was left behind in the temple and his parents found him with a group of wise men. The Joseph Smith translation actually says that the wise men were hearing Jesus and asking him questions. That's the Joseph Smith translation of Luke 2.46. And Luke then summarizes the rest of the Savior's childhood by simply recording, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, because we don't know very much about the early life of Jesus Christ, a number of folk legends have actually arisen surrounding what he was like as a child. For instance, you'll note at Christmas, um, we sing the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, in reality, Jesus probably cried the night he was born. If you could travel back in time to the night Jesus was born and find the grotto where Mary and Joseph were and walk in and the baby was screaming, you wouldn't turn around and walk out and say, sorry, I'm looking for a baby that, that doesn't cry. Jesus came to earth. Uh, the lesson John is trying to share with us here is that Jesus came to earth as one of us. He completely lost the knowledge of his former place and glory. John writes succinctly, he received not of the fullness at first, but he received grace for grace. And the lesson here is clear. The Savior came to earth. He passed through the veil. He lost all the knowledge he'd previously held as Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. And by the way, this isn't only taught in section 93. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, Jesus, that, that's in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, by the way, if you're interested in looking that up. Jesus uh, never asked any person to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Everybody that comes to earth goes through this process where we lose our former status and glory and basically become helpless infants. Lorenzo Snow, for instance, noted this about Jesus as an infant. When Jesus lay in a manger, he was a helpless infant, and he knew not that he was the Son of God, and that formerly he created the earth. When the Edict of Herod was issued, he knew nothing of it. He had not power to save himself, and his father and mother had to take him and fly into Egypt to preserve him from the effects of that edict. Well, he grew up to manhood, and during his progress it was revealed unto him who he was, and for what purpose he was in the world. 
The glory and power he possessed before he came into the world was made known unto him. So while we might not know a lot of stories about Jesus's childhood, these verses do in, in summary, basically explain to us that Jesus, when he came to earth was, um, not given any special privileges. He had to lose all of his knowledge and start over and gain it back. Just like all of us do. I'm guessing that Jesus gained it back much more rapidly uh, than most of us do. It seems like by the time he was baptized by John, he knew exactly who he was and what his purpose and mission here was. The veil had been lifted, but it's just nice to know that he didn't really have any extraordinary privileges when he came here to earth. And and that ties us into the whole reason why Jesus gives section 93 to begin with. Go with me to verses 19 and 20, where um the, the revelation says, Jesus steps in from the record of John and says, I give unto you these sayings, this is verse 19, that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So Jesus basically says really simply, I'm giving you these sayings for two reasons, to know how to worship and to know what you worship. Now, addressing the first part of this statement, how we worship, Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught, perfect worship is emulation. We honor those whom we imitate. The most perfect way to worship is to be holy as Jehovah is holy. It's to be pure as Christ is pure. It's to do the things that enable us to become like the Father. The course is one of obedience. For instance, you might have noticed emulation in our worship services. Uh, we go to church uh, or in the last year, we've stayed at home and done this also there as well. But we basically ask several young men to dress up and act as if they're Christ for just a few minutes every week. They get up, they break bread, they bless water, uh, they pass and distribute it to us. These were all things that Jesus did. We partake of the bread and the water to become part of Christ in every sense. The sacrament is basically us all emulating Christ for just a few minutes a week, and that is supposed to have a big impact on how we act throughout the rest of the week. You kind of heard the idea that you, you, you fake it till you make it. You act like Christ. And even though you're not as perfect as Christ, when you pretend to be like him, when you emulate him in your behavior, you become like him. And in that sense, you're worshiping. Now, in the second part of that statement, uh, where he says, I want you to know what you worship, the Savior actually takes the words written in the record of John and starts to use them in an interesting context. He, he right immediately after this, um, says, you shall receive grace for grace. He's taking the same words that the record of John uses to describe him and now starts to apply it to men and women. He's teaching that men and women have to receive grace for grace. He's teaching that men and women are basically an, an embryonic, to use that word, form of divinity, that we have the potential to become like God. This teaching ran contrary to the prominent thinking of Joseph Smith's day, uh, that by, that Christ was both fully human and fully divine, a philosophy most Christians followed in Joseph Smith's day and still follow uh, for now. So, Section 93 is kind of a theological shot in the arm to basically say that's not the case. Jesus had to gain everything grace or grace. He wasn't uh, fully divine at first. He had to get all of his knowledge back. And the next few verses take the readers. These are verses 21 to 35 through a sequence 
of events that basically explain the true nature of all people and their relationship to God, what you worship. Elder Tad Collister kind of summarized this idea um, when, when he taught this. He said, quote, the difference between man and God is significant, but it's one of degree not kind. It's the difference between an acorn and an oak tree, a rosebud and a rose, a son and a father. In truth, every man is a potential God and embryo. In fulfillment of that eternal law that like begets like, why is it so critical to have a correct vision of his divinity and of godliness with what the scriptures and others so clearly testify? Because with increased vision comes increased motivation. Now, the Savior's already said, I had received grace or grace, You have to receive grace for grace. Then he starts to teach some really interesting stuff. Go to verse 21. Now, verily, I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn. And all who are begotten through me are partakers of the glory of the same and are the church of the firstborn. You were also in the beginning with the Father, that which is spirit, even the spirit of truth. So he says two things here that are really interesting. I was in the beginning with the Father. I'm the firstborn. You were in the beginning with the Father. No, we accept that Jesus was in the beginning with the Father. He's the firstborn among the sons of God. But how far do we take that? Like, does that mean that he's as old as God? For instance, a 1909 Declaration of the First Presidency clarifies that Jesus is the firstborn. It says, quote, Jesus is the firstborn among all the sons of God, the first begotten in spirit, the only begotten in flesh. He's our elder brother, and we, like him, are in the image of God. The status of Jesus as the firstborn of every creature is also taught by Paul in Colossians. That's Colossians 1.5. But Jesus is not just asserting that he's in the beginning with God. He's saying we're in the beginning with God too. That is a little bit different, right? Is he saying we're as old as God? And how exactly does that work? This is the first place in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord clearly teaches of a pre-mortal existence. Of men and women. He's going to give give even more information to Joseph Smith when he translates the book of Abraham. But in an earlier revelation, Joseph Smith receives when he's translating Genesis, uh, Jesus says, I am God, I made the world and men before they were in the flesh. But in saying the people are also in the beginning with God, the Savior is referring to the eternal, uncreated characteristics of all men and women. Contrary to Christian perceptions of the day, which generally taught that human beings were created ex nihilo, out of nothing, there's an eternal and everlasting part of every person. This is the Revelation's second great doctrinal contribution. The difference between men and women and God is one of degree. It's not of kind. Like Elder Collister says, it's the difference between an oak tree and an acorn. Now going on, the Savior tries to address an even bigger topic, just the idea of truth. Uh, verse 24, you remember way back in the New Testament when Jesus is confronted by Pilate and Jesus says, I am here of the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? Um, Jesus could have given this answer because he, he defines truth in verse 24. It says, truth is a knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was the liar from the beginning. Now, that declaration, which sounds really, really simple, um, is again another shot in the arm to our understanding of truth. There's so many people today that truth that, that suggests that truth is relative, that it's just subject to the perceptions of the person who's viewing it. And that might be true to a certain degree, but it does throw out the window the idea that there's objective truth. Verse 24 says there's an objective truth 
to things as they are, were, and as they are to come, past, present, and future. We sometimes preoccupy ourselves with the future, but the question of how things were in the past and how things actually are in the present are important as well. At times, the most difficult task is not to know the past or the future, but to know the reality of what is actually truth in the present. Um, President Uchtdorf, a couple of years ago, uh, gave this uh, gave this talk where he quoted a, a poem by John Godfrey Sachs called The Blind Man and the Elephant to illustrate the, the danger of approaching truth the wrong way. The poem begins like this. Six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. Now, in the story, each of these travelers who are blind, they're learned, though, walks up and takes uh, a part of the elephant. So one grabs the um, elephant's leg and describes it as round and rough like a tree. And another one feels the tusk and describes it as a spear. And a third grabs the elephant's tail and says, oh, elephants are like rope. Another one discovers the trunk and insists that an elephant is a large snake. Each person, the point President Uchtdorf was trying to make, is telling the truth. But each only knows the truth from their own personal experiences, and there's a larger truth that each of them has to embrace. In fact, he goes on to read in the poem, And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceedingly stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Like, like the blind men in the poem, we sometimes assume to know the whole objective truth when in reality we only know part of it. The father and son, Jesus is basically saying, see and know the whole truth. It exists objectively to them, the past, present, and the future are all the same thing to them. So they're really asking us to trust us here. The Savior, uh, for instance, says, I am the spirit of truth. And John bore record of me saying he received the fullness of truth, even all the truth, and no man receiveth the fullness of truth unless he receives the commandments. And the Savior might be telling us to accept these truths because he is about to drop a major uh, bomb on our heads about the nature of, of human beings. If you go to verse 29, he says this, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also, otherwise there's no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man, here's the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. So in section 93, verses 30 through 32, the Savior is basically explaining how men and women can be co-eternal with God and still be his children. There's an eternal element of man that's labeled here intelligence. And I should mention this, this word is sometimes used in different ways in different places. Uh, but here the Savior gives us a few things about intelligence that we know. He says intelligence can't be created or made. Second, in verse 30, he says intelligence is free to act in the sphere in which God has placed it or more directly, intelligence has agency. Beyond these two things, we don't know very much about intelligence, and we need to be cautious with that. Joseph Fielding Smith warned about the dangers of taking our limited knowledge on the subject too far. He said, quote, Some of our writers have endeavored to explain what intelligence is, but to do so is futile, for we've never been given any insight into this matter behind, beyond what the Lord has fragmentarily revealed. We know, however, that there is something called intelligence which always existed, it is the real eternal part of man, which was not created or made. This intelligence combined with the spirit constitutes a spiritual identity or individual. 
So, uh, unquote, end of quote. So President Smith is saying basically beyond what's in Section 93, we really don't know that much about intelligence. Uh, so we need to be cautious in the way it's applied. But it's pretty cool to know that there's a part of every single man and woman that has always existed that's co-eternal with God and has always had some semblance of agency. This idea has huge philosophical consequences. For instance, consider the problem of evil. Um, a lot of people who question the existence of God often use the existence of evil and suffering in the world as evidence that there is no God. When people point out that men and women have agency uh, and that causes evil, um, so, so someone comes to you and says, there's no God because bad things happen and we live in a, a world where all these terrible things occur. A person of faith can often argue back and say, well, a lot of bad things happen just because people have agency and they make bad decisions. To which the uh, counter answer could be someone saying, well, why didn't God just make men and women into the kind of beings who don't do bad things? If God's so good, why are there bad things in the world? And why didn't he make humans so that they wouldn't do bad things? Section 93 actually gives an answer to this question uh, regarding the capacity of men and women to engage in acts of evil. There's a part of men and women here called intelligence that God did not create. Section 93 says intelligence has always existed and it's always had agency. Thus, men and women are responsible for their own decisions and always have been. This not only addresses the issue of evil, but also the nature of free will and predeterminism. Truman Madsen, who you probably know from the Joseph Smith um, lectures that he gave, but it was actually a professor of philosophy at BYU during his career, phrased it this way. He said, question, if man is totally the creation of God, how can he be anything or do anything that was not that he was not divinely precast to do? In other words, if God created you uh, from scratch, ex nihilo, how can you be responsible for your own actions? God made you to do all these things, and you just basically have to point back to him. You're a robot that God created a program to do certain things, and that's all you were ever meant to do. The answer that Truman Manson gave is, man is not totally the creation of God. Section 93 says, intelligence was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Here's the agency of man. So the intelligence part that makes up ourselves was not created by God, and that doesn't lessen our relationship with him. God took the intelligence, he provided it with a body of spirit, and then arranged for the eternal progression of those who follow him. In this sense, the relationship between God, his sons, and his daughters closely mirrors the relationship between earthly parents and children. Parents do not love their children less because they know they existed before they came into their home. Knowing the eternal nature of each child makes our connection to God the Father even more profound. So there's a part of us that's just always existed. And because that part of us, that intelligence has always had agency, that means you have always had, in some sense, the right to make your own decisions. Heavenly Father took that, nourished it, and sent it down the road to the plan of salvation. But we basically aren't robots running programs. We've always existed and always had the power to make our own decisions. And therefore, the actions that we take can't be blamed on God. It's your decision. It's your choice. Lord goes on to say a couple more important things. Verse 33, for man is spirit. The elements are eternal and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy. When separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. The elements are the tabernacle of God. Man is the tabernacle of God, even temples and whatsoever temple is defiled. God shall destroy that temple. This is where that idea comes from, that it's not a bad thing to have a physical body. It's a good thing. God says that 
Um, when spirit and element are connected, they receive a fullness of joy. And when they're separated, they can't receive a fullness of joy. Part of it has to do with what Joseph Smith taught about the dur- durability of matter. He said this, quote, anything created cannot be eternal. Air, earth, water, and all these have their existence in an elementary state for eternity. In other words, anything that's eternal that lasts forever is eternal. It's not created from scratch. He would also teach a little bit later on, this is in section 131, that there's no such thing as immaterial matter. All matter is but more fine or pure and can only be discerned by pure eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it's all matter. Now, asserting the spirit and matter are forms of the same thing and that both are eternal really ran contrary to the popular theology of Joseph Smith's day. Historically, most Christian religions taught that God created everything from nothing ex nihilo, and that all spiritual, and that only spiritual things are eternal in nature and physical things are, are temporary. These ideas, which kind of came from Greek philosophy, set up the physical world as a prison that our spirits are trapped within. In contrast to this, the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenant establish that both spirit and matter are eternal, and people only obtain a fullness of joy when these two elements are brought together and find their true eternal form. In contrast uh, to the teaching that God is a being without body, parts, or passions, we teach that God lives in a physical body. All people are created in his image and have the potential to become like him if they choose to follow his plan. Then the Lord continues to play on the word intelligence. Verse 36, he says, uh, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth, and light and truth forsake the evil one. Again, um, this is often used to highlight the importance of of learning. It's used a little bit different here than when he's describing intelligence as that eternal essence of who and what you are. Um, the phrase, the glory of God is intelligence, is often used to highlight how important it is to, to learn. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, it appears that the Savior uses intelligence, light, truth, spirit, and glory, often interchangeably. In fact, John A. Widso, um, an, a, an apostle in the 20th century, commented on this. He said, the intelligent man is he who seeks knowledge and uses it in accordance with the plan of God for human good. When men follow the light, their knowledge will always be used as well. Intelligence then becomes another name for wisdom. In the language of mathematics, we say that knowledge plus the proper use of knowledge equals intelligence or wisdom. In this sense, intelligence becomes the goal of the successful life. Now, moving on in the Revelation, and John Woodso quote, every spirit of man, this is verse 38, was innocent from the beginning. And God... Having redeemed man from the fall, men become again in their innocence, in their infant state, innocent before God. And the wicked one cometh away and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. But I've commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. Now this tackles another huge philosophical question, which is, are men and women good or evil by nature? The revelation declares that all people are innocent at the time of their birth and don't have a predisposition towards evil. The choices people make cause them to move towards becoming good or evil, but every person begins life with a fresh start. Whatever sins or transgressions people may have, uh, whatever they did during pre-mortality, they have a new beginning with a, a whole world of new possibilities before they come to earth. The Lord acknowledges that some are born into better or, or worse living environments. The traditions of their fathers can sometimes blur their sense of morality. It, it might um, even affect the light of Christ, even though the light of Christ is given to everybody. But the default setting for humans is innocence. Men and women are not inherently evil. 
They're just sometimes led into making bad choices by the wicked one. And these choices may subsequently cause them to lose the light and truth that they that they have as their birthright. Truman Manson phrased it this way. Question, how can man be a divine creation and yet be totally depraved? Answer, man is not totally depraved. Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning and God redeemed them from the fall and man become again in their infant state innocent before God. Now, this does not deny that there's real genuine evil in the world, but the Lord is saying evil is unnatural. The natural state of man is innocence and goodness. Evil comes when a person's agency is distorted to work against the greater good and will of God. And this might be another important reason why the Savior is telling these truths to the men who received this revelation. You'll note in verse 40, I've commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And all of a sudden, it seems like the revelation takes a sharp left turn to where in verses 41 down to verse 53, it seems like he he shifts from these profound philosophical truths to sort of like addressing each person that's receiving the revelation. Frederick G. Williams in verse 41, Sidney Rigdon in verse 44, um, Joseph Smith himself in verse 47, and Newell K. Whitney in verse 50. But there's a definite tie in here, right? He starts talking about their children and their families. Um and, and saying to them, you, verse 42 to Frederick G. Williams, you have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments. And that wicked one hath power as yet over you. And this is the cause of your affliction. In other words, the reason why he's teaching these individuals all these truths about the nature of humanity and its potential is because Joseph and Frederick and Sidney and Newell have several little humans in their care. They have families, they have children, and the Savior is basically trying to explain to them how sacred a trust that is. So the last part of the revelation, the Savior gives an application of the principles he's sharing, which is basically, I don't want you to just accept this as a philosophical argument and then move on with your life. Take these truths and apply them. Look at your kids as as beings of light and truth who are innocent from the beginning and have agency and power to choose, and then do everything you can to do what God has done for you. Help them make the right decisions. Help them know light from truth. Um, this thematically connects the entire revelation together. Um, and also the whole mission of the church together. You might remember that old saying that gets said over and over and over again, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. It's almost like the Savior saying, yes, you're translating the Bible. Yes, you're setting up the church. But remember, as important as those things are, the most important thing in your life is the people that I've given you stewardship over, especially your children. Out of all the grand roles and powers of God that are discussed in the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenant, the most significant role the Savior holds up is to nurture and help his children on the path to eternal life. There's no more important set of people when it comes to nurturing and helping on the path to eternal life than mothers and fathers. Fatherhood, for instance, is an inseparable element of how Latter-day Saints uh, think of and conceptualize the nature of God. Note this statement from President Dallin H. Oaks. He said, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Under the merciful plan of the Father, all of this is possible through the atonement of the only begotten of the Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As earthly parents, we participate in the gospel plan by providing mortal bodies for the spirit children of God. The fullness of eternal salvation is a family matter. 
End quote. Now, think about that for just a minute. The Savior, again, starts out the revelation by saying, here's what I am. I am a being of light and truth with all power and glory in the universe, and anybody can become like me. Here's the five steps. The next thing that he does is basically go out of his way to explain to us, okay, I'm not that different from you. Yes, the Savior is morally perfect. He never commits a sin. But he also says that when he came to earth, uh, he lost all of his knowledge. He had to gain everything back grace for grace. He explains to us that we have to do likewise. We have to gain everything back grace for grace. And then reveals the reason why he's saying this. In other words, what we worship. We're the same type of beings as God. We're co-eternal. There's a part of us that's always existed, just like God and Jesus Christ have always existed. That doesn't mean we're as far along the path of progression as Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, but he does want us to know that we have that potential, that we can become like them if we'll follow their commandments and obey light and truth. And then at the end of the revelation, he takes these these men aside that he's speaking to and basically highlights to them the importance of family that the most effective place for sharing the gospel and for imbuing light and truth is within the walls of our own home. You might have thought or or connected this to the recent efforts made by the church to uh, basically say we're, we're, we're not a uh, home-supported church, we're a home-centered church-supported religion. That the magic that really happens that, that allows a person to convert and and gain these truths and then become like God primarily is is taught and imbued within the walls of a home that when a person is taught who and what they really truly are it does change and magnify and sanctify them the people that do that in this life are our parents and parents reading through section 93 i hope you get an appreciation for how sacred and important and vital your role is now there are occasionally situations where a person is not raised by ideal parent well none of us are probably raised by ideal parents but there's some people that grow up in really difficult family situations to them the church exists to provide a surrogate family a group of people that if your parents aren't quite able to can step in and inspire and teach you light and truth and lift you up and help you. But that's the whole point of this entire intense philosophical discussion on who and what humans are, is to basically say the greatest thing that we can do in this life is to nurture and help people understand who and what they can really be. Whether you do that uh, by being a a father or a mother, or by being a, a leader in the church, or just being a good neighbor that reaches out to the people around you, lifts them up, explains to them who and what they are, and then gives them opportunities to learn light and truth. It's all the same. The greatest responsibility that we have in this life is to nurture others. When we when we learn about the nature of parenthood, we're learning about the nature of God. And learning the nature of Godhood is something that we do when we act as fathers, mothers, teachers, mentors, or you name it to another person. There's that old phrase in the Miserables, uh, the play I'm talking about here, the musical, where they say to love another person is to see the face of God. And in section 93, the Lord is basically saying, what I want you most to know about me is that I'm doing the best I can and have always been doing the best I can to nurture this little intelligence, to becoming a spirit person, to becoming a physical person, then being resurrected, to become a divine person through the atonement of Jesus Christ, 
and then to become someone who has fully met the measure of their potential. We live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, and the Savior is desperately trying to help us to understand and know how to worship. That's to help ourselves and others become like him. And what we worship, a being that is a lot more like us than we sometimes assume he is and can eventually show us what we are going to become or what we can be if we follow and keep the commandments. I I just want to end by bearing you my testimony that I love section 93 and what it says about us and who we are and what our potential is. These are beautiful, wonderful truths with a capital T that I hope everybody understands because this is at the heart of what we believe and teach as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Everybody around us is a divine son or daughter of God a child of heavenly parents, and we can help them become what they're supposed to be. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope that you'll join us each week as different wonderful scholars from the Cedar Fort family can sit down and walk you through. Uh, Come follow me, especially the text of the Doctrine and Covenants. Please have a great week. Be safe out there and enjoy your feasting on these beautiful and wonderful revelations. Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about reading and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Perhaps you know of someone who does not believe the Savior's promise of a beautiful, abundant life if we but follow Him. Do you know what it means to be alive in Christ? Do you believe Him? You can have peace in this life as well as in the life to come. This outstanding book can teach you how to overcome the world and achieve the glorious life that Jesus Christ has promised us. It can show you how to put off the natural man, become a new creature, and be alive in Christ. The Savior was serious when He promised us rich blessings. You can transcend all obstacles with the help of God. You can rise above mortal temptations and tribulations and enjoy the companionship of the Holy Ghost at all times. Alive in Christ can show you how. Written by Thomas Holton. Available at cedarfort.com.